would have been quite normal. Every Jewish boy had a bar mitzvah when he was about 13. And in order to pre- prepare him for this rite of passage into adulthood, the uh, Jewish teachers and rabbis recommended that he went to a few feasts first to learn about the faith before he assumed his responsibilities as a, a man, as a son of the law, a son of the commandment. It's not unusual either that Jesus ended up getting lost. This doesn't mean that Joseph and Mary were negligent parents. We know from later sources that all the people from a particular area would have all travelled together for safety reasons and that quite often the women and children went at first at the front and then, and then the men and older children brought up the rear. The thing is, if you were age 12, you could fall nice and easy into either category. And it would be easy to see how Joseph could have naturally assumed that Jesus would have been in the front with Mary, and Mary would have naturally assumed that Jesus would have been bringing up the rear with Joseph. It was only when they stopped for the night that they realised, horror of horrors, Jesus isn't with us. So the next day, Mary and Joseph headed back to Jerusalem, and the following day, they found Jesus in the temple courts, in the midst of this group of Jewish teachers, asking them questions and taking part in some of the religious debates of the day. When it says that it took three days to find Jesus, that probably means that they travelled up for a, a day, then it took them a day to travel back, and then they found him on the third day in the temple court. The temple courts were the major teaching forum in Jerusalem. The uh, kind of rabbis and professors and intelligentsia of the Jewish faith would all sit there to discuss the law and um, work out what various parts of the Old Testament meant. Again, there isn't anything unusual about Jesus being there. Apparently, contributions from the young were greatly appreciated and young people were actually encouraged to ask questions and give answers and defend their own views with all these top teachers and rabbis. And in that kind of atmosphere, the young Jesus must have thrived. You know, this wasn't just small-town Nazareth with its uh, synagogues and wandering rabbis. This was Jerusalem and the temple, the epicentre of religious learning and an opportunity that would just have been simply too great for him to have missed. Evidently, everyone was amazed at some of the things that Jesus said. Some of the cleverest brains in the Jewish world were impressed with his understanding. And even Mary and Joseph were astonished to see him there and wondered what was going on. More than that, though, they were probably just relieved to see him safe. And as any parent would in the circumstances, their questions to him combined concern and rebuke. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been looking for you everywhere. I think we need to say too that Jesus wasn't being forgetful or absent-minded when he stayed behind in Jerusalem, but was making a deliberate point. At this stage in his life, on the verge of manhood, he was saying something about his priorities in life and affirming that his real father was not Joseph in Nazareth, but God in heaven. Therefore, the most natural place, the most logical place in the whole world for him to be was in the temple, in his father's house, as he put it. I don't think that Jesus was being unkind. I certainly wasn't being deliberately disobedient. But he was making a point that there was more to this kid than meets the eye. 
and that in some special way that no one else had quite yet comprehended, he was uniquely the Son of God. His response evidently confused Mary and Joseph, and it says that they all returned home to Nazareth, and Jesus was obedient to them. That is, he kept God's law, including the fifth commandment here, which is to honour your father and mother. And then, in conclusion, down again in verse 52, we get the summary statement that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. That it is to say that he grew physically, intellectually and spiritually, much in the same way that we do. So then, that's a kind of casual walk through the story. And I'd like to start drawing out a few, um, a few lessons for us from the text. I think when we face any text like this, the most important question to ask is, what can I learn from this passage about Jesus? The crucial question is not me, where am I, whom I most like here. The crucial question is, what is God teaching us about himself, about Jesus, from this passage of Scripture? So the um, first route that we have to go down in applying a scripture passage like this to ourselves is, is to ask, what can we learn about him? What can we learn about Jesus? What is Luke trying to tell us about Jesus to enthuse us and excite us and stimulate us and to meet our deepest needs? So then, uh, I guess we could call our heading number two would be something like some theology about Jesus. And the first thing that Luke wants to stress from this passage is the humanity of Christ. Throughout this whole story, he seems to be emphasising that in many ways, Jesus was exactly the same as every other human being to walk the earth. He tells us that Jesus grew physically. In verse 40, he says that the child grew and became strong. In verse 52, as we've already seen, it says that Jesus grew in stature, meaning that he matured and grew up and got older. I think the reason that Luke is emphasising Jesus' physical growth is because he wants us to realise that he was a real flesh and blood human being. He's telling us that Jesus' participation in our humanity was something that was real. Jesus wasn't just pretending to be human or in some way putting it on or going through the motions or acting out a kind of charade. Luke says he fully participated in our humanity, right down to the very human bits of growing up and getting hairs on his chest and developing strong muscles to help him in his carpenter's shop. Every aspect of Jesus' development in this area was normal. This, of course, means that Jesus shared many of the heartaches that we do. If it is true, as we think from all the available evidence, that his father Joseph died shortly after this, then Jesus knew firsthand what it's like to be bereaved, to lose someone close to him. He would have known firsthand what it, it was like to have started work, to have been an apprentice, to, to have supported his family in that way. He would have known what it would have been like to have lived in a, in a single parent family, helping his mum to bring up his brothers and sisters. This means that Jesus by his humanity, is able to sympathise with us and some of the difficult things that we will go through in 2003. Jesus is human. 
He knows what it's like. Sometimes we forget that. The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He is sympathetic to us. He was tempted, he was tested just as we are, yet was without sin. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He is fully human, therefore he is able to represent us, he is able to sympathize with us, and he is able to make a perfect sacrifice for us on our behalf. So that's Jesus, fully human. The second thing that Luke wants us to learn about Jesus is that he was divine. The fact that Jesus was not only fully human, but was also God. And again, this is something that Luke draws out in this passage. It's perhaps most evident in verse 49, when Jesus answers his parents after they found him in the temple courts by saying that he had to be in his father's house. The fact that Mary and Joseph didn't really quite understand what was going on um, shows us that he was claiming something out of the ordinary. This is more than a child prodigy. What they had here was someone claiming to be the son of God. He was claiming that God was his father in a unique sense. And we can see this even further by the contrast that Luke obviously intends us to make between Mary, when she refers to Joseph as your father, in verse 48, she says, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And that contrasts with the way that Jesus refers very definitely to God as my father in verse 49. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? We aren't to mistake at all what Jesus is saying. His real father wasn't Joseph, but God. And his real home wasn't Nazareth, but the temple in Jerusalem. At this key point, Jesus was saying that his real father is God. There's a sense of a destiny here. I must be in my father's house. And a sense of calling that Jesus would radically pursue God's will for his life, even if it ended up hurting some of the people who were most dearest and were closest to him. Now, we obviously don't know exactly at what point Jesus became aware of his divine identity or how his understanding perhaps grew over time. But what we do know is that at age 12, he knew that he had a special relationship to the Father that took precedence over everything else in his life. And then this leads us on to the third thing that, Luke's want, that Luke wants us to notice about Jesus, which is that he had to learn and grow intellectually. Now, it's first glance, this doesn't quite seem to fit with what we've just said about Jesus being God. However, the text, I think, is quite unambiguous about the fact that Jesus was asking the Jewish teachers questions, and he was actually learning from them in some sense. I'm sure the uh, sharp ones among you can see the problem already. Why did Jesus need to learn if he was also fully God, and therefore all-knowing? If Jesus was fully God, then how come he had to learn anything at all? Surely he knew everything already because of his divine nature, did he not? And in response to that, I would have to say, I think it's a very difficult question. The Gospels do seem to say that Jesus knew everything, but then there are also passages like this that seem to indicate that he needed to learn and grow and develop in his knowledge and understanding. I think one way of fitting the two together is to say that there were certain parts of being God that Jesus chose not to use while he was on earth. And 
One of them might be the attributes of omniscience or being all-knowing. It was potentially there, as we know from those instances in the Gospels where Jesus chose to know the secrets of men's hearts and so on. But there are other occasions like this one when Jesus shared our humanity to such an extent that he chose to limit it and actually needed to learn and grow like us. I think in particular he he chose to grow and develop and learn in the area of his relationship with God and and especially in 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 the understanding of his role and mission and purpose as the chosen one, as the Messiah who would die to lead his people to freedom. He could read all all, all about that in Isaiah and work out what he had to do. Jesus needed perhaps to learn through prayer, through spending time with God and pouring over the Old Testament scriptures how the mechanics of his job would work out and what that would look like. Jesus was also a teacher and a preacher and a wise man. While it's true that many of his stories and parables were drawn from everyday life in the tones of Judea, It's equally true that he obviously knew the Old Testament back to front and could handle himself in any religious discussion with the rabbis. Again, he had to learn it. Like any good preacher, Jesus needed to have a handle on the Word of God, on the Bible. Just because he was God didn't necessarily mean that he didn't have to learn as a human. Then a final thing that Luke wants us to learn about Jesus is that he was perfectly obedient to God. First of all, the text tells us that he put God first. He put God first by going to his father's house. But more than that, he always put God first in every decision he ever made. And then secondly, he perfectly obeyed God's law. In verse 51, it says that after this incident that Jesus went back to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and was obedient to them. That is, he kept the fifth commandment. Honour your father and mother. And he kept all the other commandments as well. The New Testament affirms that from one end to the other, Jesus lived a morally perfect life. You see, we fail on both of those counts, don't we? We can't say that we always put God first in every occasion, can we? Nor can we ever say that we have perfectly kept God's laws because none of us have. If we're honest, we will admit to that. Luke's point here is that Jesus succeeded where we fail. He consistently put God first where we don't. He kept all of God's laws where we don't. We stumble and fall and fail and are therefore in desperate need of a saviour. Jesus, on the other hand, never failed. He did everything necessary to keep God's law. So then, four things about Jesus in total. Jesus' full humanity, his deity, his messianic mission, and his obedience to God's law mean that he is perfectly qualified to be our saviour. Luke wants to show us that Jesus is both able and willing to rescue us from our sins and to take us to heaven. Perhaps an illustration of this might help. If you think for a moment that perhaps you were walking in the mountains in wintertime and you 
get lost due to some snow and some very bad visibility. In, in that kind of situation, I am sure that you would like to think that the mountain rescue would come out to save you. However, in order to be fully confident of that, I would need to be absolutely sure about two things, wouldn't I? First of all, I would need to be absolutely confident that they were able to come and rescue me. I would need to know that they were adequately equipped, that they had their thermal imaging cameras and compasses and uh, mats and St. Bernard's dogs and whatever they use. Secondly, I would need to know that they were willing to come and find me. It would be no good at all if I had all the equipment but their hearts weren't really in it and they weren't actually willing to go out on the mountainside in the blizzard because it was too cold. I would need to know and be absolutely sure that they were both willing and able. And that's the kind of confidence that Luke is trying to give us in this passage about Jesus. First of all, Luke is saying that he is able. He is fully God and fully man. He is the perfect human being who lived the perfect human life. He is absolutely, adequately equipped to save us. Then Luke is saying that he is willing. He was willing to put God first, age 12. He was willing to put God first and go to the cross 30 years when he was 30 years old. And again, he's willing to save us today. If Jesus had been able but not willing, then he would have never gone to the cross to rescue us. If he had been willing but not able, then there's no way that God could have ever accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. He had to be both willing and and able, not just one. He had to be both simultaneously willing and able. And by God's grace, that is just the kind of saviour that we have revealed to us in Scripture. One of the things I guarantee for you for 2003 is that you will need a saviour. And what we discover here is that Jesus is that man. He is fully qualified and therefore we can call on his name and trust him with confidence to come and rescue us when we need him. So that's some theology about Jesus. Finally, some lessons for ourselves. I think that there is a sense here in which Jesus also provides us an example to imitate. And I think there's very good warrant for this from the New Testament itself. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And I think one of the main applications perhaps for us in, in this respect that we can take away is to imitate Jesus in the way that he prioritised learning about God. From this I infer that if the Son of God needed to find teachers and ask questions and learn and give answers, then we do too. And I think, generally speaking, and I include myself in this, we are, are often reluctant to learn more about God than we already know. I think most of us have been Christians for a while, find it easy to reach the stage where we think that we know enough to get by and are just quite happy to coast along at the same speed as everyone else. Like a car, we maybe did a relatively fast not to 60 when, when we first became Christians. But now that, that, that we've reached the kind of stage that we think is adequate, we just put on cruise control and stay at our present level. 
we think that once we've reached the same speed as all the other cars on the road, then we can just sit back and relax because we've uh, got the place we need to be at. I think the problem is that we tend to judge our level of knowledge by how much other people know rather than by how much of God there is to get to know. We tend to judge our level of knowledge by how much other people know rather than by how much of God there is to get to know. We are like someone who thinks that they've discovered Antarctica just because they've reached base camp without realising that there's still this whole vast continent to explore full of hidden wealth. And here, I think Jesus gives us an example of how to explore. He says, find some good teachers. Sit down with them. Ply them with questions. Ask them how the Christian faith fits together. Ask them some of the deep questions that your friends maybe ask you. Tell your teacher your ideas on things and, and, and ask them what they think. Learn more about God by surrounding yourself with good teachers. I don't know, through books, through tapes, through coming to church, home, home group, fellowship groups, and so on. It's one of the reasons why I'm very sad that Jamie Johns has now moved back to the States because he was my teacher. I, I would go around to his flat and sit him down and ask him questions. Often he was far too wise to give me a straight answer, but he used to point me in the right direction and tell me what to read and would certainly correct my theology when I was going wrong. You see, there's a challenge for us here for 2003. Don't settle for the bare minimum Christian faith just like every other car on the road. Don't just aim at having enough knowledge just to look credible and get by. Instead, grow in your knowledge. Grow in your faith. There's a vast continent out there to explore full of hidden wealth. If Jesus needed teachers, then we do too, and in our culture, there are thousands of them. So then, a few words in conclusion. One of the things about child prodigies is just how many of them struggle when they grow up. There are many kids who have been well-known and appear to have a lot of potential aged eight who have faded away totally by the time they're in their 20s. Often, it's a lethal cocktail of media hype and parents or teachers who apply too much pressure that end up starving the child of their normal development and, and the opportunity for them to make normal relationships and friendships with their uh, friends and peer group. However, none of those things were the case with Jesus when he grew up. What strikes us is actually the incredible continuity that we see between the Jesus here, aged 12, and the Jesus that we meet 18 years later at the start of his public ministry. He still had his love for the Father. He still asked questions and studied the scriptures. He still put God first and ended up at Jerusalem making a splash in the temple right at the heart of the religious world of his day. You see, it was relatively easy for the authorities to ignore Jesus as a, a child. It would be far harder for them to sweep him under the carpet as a man. To silence him then was going to take an awful lot more. And by then too, he would be an awful lot clearer about his mission, his mission for which he had long been prepared to die for the sins of the world. And the issue of their response this morning 
helps us reflect on what our response to him is going to be as well. I hope and pray in one sense that this passage has broadened your horizons and perhaps made you think about Jesus in new ways. Here we see the second person of the Trinity becoming a little boy and being dependent on a human family. We see the creator of the universe becoming like us and being exposed to the perplexities of human ignorance and the joys of human discovery. One way to think about Jesus, I often think, is of a beautiful diamond that reflects the light in a hundred different ways. And perhaps this passage gives us a few new angles and a few new different ways to observe his beauty in ways that we maybe haven't thought about before. And our response to such a person can only be praise and worship. I'm not sure who or what you are planning on living for in 2003. The job, the car, paying the mortgage off, and so on. There are lots of different options, but right now, at the start of the year, perhaps you need to set your course straight. I was really struck by what someone said at the um, testimony meeting last Sunday evening that they had spent most of their life worshipping John Lennon and the Beatles, but at the end of the day, there was only one person who was worth idolising, and that is Jesus Christ. This passage says, don't bother with any fake diamonds. Don't bother with those little plastic gems that you can get really cheaply that aren't the real thing. In Jesus, we have someone who is both willing and able to save us. He is fully equipped to rescue us from our sins and take us safely to heaven, to protect our faith this coming year if we trust in him. Therefore, let us trust in him as our saviour. Let us imitate him as our example. Let us worship him as our Lord. He is a fully qualified rescuer. No ordinary child, no ordinary man, no ordinary saviour. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for what we learn about your only son, the Lord Jesus Spirit. He who shared in our humanity, even down to the very details of growing up. He who developed a 100% pure, holy record before you, so that at the end of his life, when he died, he could transfer it to us if we believe in him. He who is fully man, yet also fully God. He who consistently put his father first and other people's needs before his own. We thank you for the truths that we learned that uh, he can rescue us and save us on the basis of who he was. We give thanks that in him we have a guide, we have someone to copy an example to imitate as we live our lives under his lordship so Heavenly Father we just simply and humbly ask that in 2003 that we would indeed follow closely him, that we would put him first that we would put others first that we might imitate him that we might trust in him more that we might put our confidence more in he who was both willing and able to rescue us 
Heavenly Father, we ask these things now in Jesus' name for ourselves as individuals and for us as a church too. In Jesus' name, amen.